0: Right, we sung some Christmas songs. That's good, right? Good, good. Yeah, there's, um, again, there's, I mean, this is biblically founded, theologically sound. Uh, there's two types of, of people, people who love Christmas songs and people who are in desperate need of hearing the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to have their hearts be regenerate. Also, there's people who like Christmas songs and people who think Chihuahuas are a legitimate dog breed. Um, it just doesn't doesn't work and so and just i mean what i mean by christmas songs again i said this in first service i mean like real chris there's christmas songs christmas music and then there's like like macy's christmas shopping music like jingle bells that's not christmas music that's jingle bells um but you're talking like joy to the world hark the herald angels these are like theologically rich just brilliant beautiful poetry and lyrics so um if you can't get into that, there, there'll be people up here to pray after service <laughs> for you. Um, so we are two-thirds of our way through the book of Isaiah. It's been a 12-week series. We are entering today. We're ending the second part of the trilogy, Rise of the Daystar, and entering into the last section, the, the Christmassy section called War of the Lamb. But before we do that, I want to briefly highlight something. You will all be receiving a letter from me in the mail. Uh, if we have a way to get a hold of you, I mean, I address anywhere you left a trace of yourself anywhere, you're getting this letter. And there's a Christmas card with the the, the church staff in it. But there's a letter that I wrote that will highlight um, our year-in-giving push for the end of December. If you've been here for a long time, you know every year we have to have a big year-in-giving push. There's a number of reasons for that. The biggest reason for a kind of a year-in-giving push is. That nonprofits in the country, and we're no different as a church, we rely on 25% on average of our entire income coming in the month of December. So nonprofits, churches in America, have to have, they rely on 25% of the entirety of their income coming in the month of December. So we have to have like a super December year in order to make it work. In that letter, I go over some of the other details, the reasons why, what we're planning. But I also share some of the highlights from 2017, some major victories and accomplishments. I'm not going to go over them all. They're in the letter. Read it. But just briefly as an example Um, For 2017, we've had an incredible year. We've seen dozens, dozens of of people um, commit their lives to Jesus, be baptized, have children dedicated. I talk about that. It's it's awesome. We've had an incredible year with that. Easter baptisms were great. We just did baptisms recently. I was so encouraged by how many young people we saw getting baptized, like young adults um, getting baptized. So it's been an absolutely incredible year with that. In addition, I I highlighted something that for strategic purposes, we had a group of people participate in something they called "heel to hill," where they raised money and they ended up raising about $18,000 running a ridiculous amount of miles. Um, It was awesome. Yeah, clap for that and then you're gonna clap for the other one all the more. But I want you to know how we strategically use our money. That $18,000 that was raised by hill to hill we used to partner with an organization called Project Cure. And what Project Cure does is they secure donations of medical supplies and equipment. So we don't have the resources or the personnel to hunt all across the country for medical supplies and resources. I mean, that stuff is just very, very expensive. So they're securing all of these supplies and technology, et cetera, et cetera. They get those, and then what we do is we pay that $18,000 to pay for this massive cargo container filled with these donated medical supplies send over to the hospital work that we do in Nigeria. And when it's all said and done, that $18,000 turned into us sending a half a million dollars of donated medical supplies overseas to quiz hospital. This is... This is no joke. Sam and I were talking about this when he was breaking this down for me. I'm going, oh, half a million dollars. Come on, half a million dollars. I can't even think that high. Half a million dollars. And so, you know, he pulls up the details, breaks it down. A half a million dollars in medical supplies went to help just the most physically destitute people in, in Nigeria and in the hospital work we do there. There'll be other highlights of that. You can see we continue to fund New Life for the Children Orphanage in Haiti where we take care of feed, shelter, give a biblical education to 24 orphans. You'll also hear about in the letter. In addition to this, on a weekly basis, because of the growth that we've seen as a church, not only church-wide attendance, but particularly with the young people, we are discipling more than 250 children in Gilroy, Hollister, and Centro Hispania on a weekly basis through our Sunday morning programs and our various midweek programs. So that's 250 kids going through that. Absolutely uh, incredible. So what I want to do is, is just say that we need a giant year-end uh, push this year, giving-wise, and there's three major reasons for that. The first reason I already mentioned, it's just like every year in December, we need 25% of our income to come in. It's just the name of the game. That's why every, like, everyone in the mail is going to be receiving stuff about charities and nonprofits because it's just the way our culture works look for the south valley logo there's cool pictures look for us uh, read the letter it'll go more to, more in detail than i am today that's reason number one reason number two is we had a pretty rough start to our fiscal year and so our fiscal year where we start our budget starts july 1. we don't do a january through december we kind of budget around like a school year for the rhythms of the church and uh, the first few months of summer were, were pretty hard giving-wise at the church. Both giving and attendance, those first three months of summer, July, August, and September, were down as a whole, less than what we expected. Um, the good news is is uh, it boosted back up. In fact, November, we had church-wide our largest monthly average in attendance that we've had as a church. We actually averaged just a hair above 1,300 people for the entirety of the month of November. So that was awesome. But yeah, that's good. That's worth clapping for. That's great. <clears throat> So, but, but what happened was every, like, people did not want to admit to themselves that summer had officially ended. Uh, <laughs> typically, churches in September, like, we plan on having a low uh, July and August. That's normal. Like, that's all churches. But what was weird is what happens is you normally get this boost in September, and it was like, we didn't. In attendance or giving or anything, September was just kind of like an extended July. And if you're like me, you're looking on Facebook. And it was true. Everyone's still going on vacations. This church had tons of people going on vacation all the way to like the beginning of October. How many of you did a vacation somewhere at the beginning of October, end of September time? Anybody? Yeah, we got, uh, got a few. Yeah, more brave. Now it starts. to, uh, But it was weird. It was sort of like until the cold hit, people weren't back in their normal routine. So, all that to say is we had a rough start with um, our projected giving being off for those first 3 months. It's picked back up in November, but we're behind where we thought we would be. So, nonprofits rely on a big December. We're behind a little bit, and then the third and final reason is kind of the most motivational or inspirational one is we had a massive November. Attendance is up, the ministry is growing, and we the elders, the pastoral staff, the ministry leaders really feel we're at a critical time we're at a time of opportunity we feel that in order for us to grow we have to be able to expand our ministry and expand for more people and so um, our goal is in the next two years to launch two more campuses particularly a spanish-speaking campus in hollister we have iglesia central and gilwood but we've, we've been saying it for a couple years but we really want the next two years to be the year where we launch another campus in Spanish and Hollister and then another English-speaking uh, campus somewhere. In addition to that, uh, we're going to be launching in 2018, hopefully by God's grace, something we're calling microsites. And what microsites are are like mini versions of our church services brought to people in their places where they would not normally be able to come to one of our services. So think of the Compassion Center in Gilroy with the homeless. Think about uh, an an elderly assisted living uh, apartment complex where there's people who cannot come to church on a Sunday morning. How do we get the gospel to them? Well, What we want to do is miniature church services that are brought into those contexts among the homeless, among maybe some of the elderly who cannot come here, and there's lots of opportunities for this, and we did a practice run, and it went over great. For these microsites to run, basically... We've invested in the technology to start filming our our Sunday services for the sermon only, and then what we want to do is bring in the TV, have the sermon on video, but more importantly, have key leaders come into those communities, lead worship, play some acoustic guitars, lead the worship, bring in ministry resources. We already have small group curriculum packaged already going, so we can bring in the resources, the worship, and have the, the sermon on video to have these little mini microsites functioning for people who would normally not ever be able to come to a church service. Um, We've already begun investing in the technology to do so. There's some of you who notice changes in the rooms like instantly, and there's some of you who, who never notice, but some of you notice there's like this thing going across the ceiling with new lights. Part of that is to make the video quality better because... We just want the image and the experience to be as real and close to the real thing as possible. So there's little things we're doing already investing in that. But those three reasons are why we feel we need to have the strongest year-end that we've ever had. Last year, our year-end goal was $150,000 above normal giving. So what that means is what we normally take in in an average month, in December, we have to take in $150,000 above that. This year, we've set the goal high, and we want to have our strongest year in ever, and we're setting our goal at $200,000. Now, last year we met 150 and actually went past it. So we believe, because this church is generous and gracious and believes in the mission of the church, that we can meet that. And if we do that, we'll be able to start 2018 with momentum and being as financially sound as possible to prepare us for all the opportunities that God has before us. So my request and ask of you is to read the letter and... Pray about it, think, think about it, wrestle with this. How can you sacrificially and generously go above and beyond this December to help this church reach our year end goal? Please read the letter. I don't like writing letters. I worked really hard on it. <laughs> <laughs> Ask the staff how many people I had proofread it. I, 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 just, I have bad grammar when I write, I don't know how to do punctuation. Caroline knows. She, I gave her a draft, man. I, I just came back. You colored it red. She colored it red. I'm like, there's no white space anymore. That's just the first remarks, Isaac. Come on. It was So, alright. So we have a, like a sort of mini-sermon today. Uh, we're transitioning from The end of the last series, Rise of the Day, star to the War of the Lamb, which enters us into the Christmas season. This is where we're at in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, for the first 40 chapters, has been telling Jerusalem and its leaders, there is sin in the city, there is wickedness, and God is going to come to bring judgment upon the city. And in 586 BC, that happens. The Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And that sort of meant one of two things for the ancient Near Eastern mind, which I talked about last week. If you saw your city fall, and in particular, your temple fall by a foreign army, that meant that these people have either A, defeated your God, or B, your God abandoned you. So as the temple in Jerusalem falls to the hands of the Babylonians, the people are experiencing this like, massive existential crisis. Our God is defeated, or he has abandoned us. Now this part is absolutely critical right here. This is so important to understanding your Bibles. Most people are familiar with the story of the Exodus. Even if you're not a Christian, you're familiar with the story of Exodus. Why? Because Hollywood makes horrible movies about this time period. They made a really good one way back in the day, remember? Charlton Heston stuff. that That was the good stuff. It comes on like around Easter time. But that last one with Batman in it was just bad. It was really bad. It was really bad. Most people know the story of the Exodus, where God, through Moses, miraculously and powerfully through 10 plagues delivers his people the israelites who are in bondage and oppression in egypt out of that slavery and into the promised land what most people don't realize is at the end of the old testament god's people are waiting for a second exodus a new exodus They're not slaves in Egypt anymore, but they have been brought into exile in the land of Babylon. The temple is fallen, and they're serving as servants and slaves in this foreign land. And their belief, their hope, is that God is going to send a new kind of King David, a new Moses, a new leader who will once again, through power, might, and the miraculous deliver God's people from the hand of the oppressor and bring them back into the promised land. Isaiah is now, as we turn the page from chapter 40, is no longer telling Israel judgment is coming. The prophet of doom begins to offer some hope. He now speaks to people who are in exile and slavery in Babylon in the future. He speaks comfort to them. And this is one of the most powerful words of comfort Isaiah, the prophet, gives them. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Now, remember, if a temple was destroyed, you thought either your God was defeated or he abandoned you. Isaiah is speaking to the exiles in the future and offers them this words of comfort. Even though you think your God is defeated and has abandoned you, make no mistake about it. He lives, and more importantly, He will not forget you. He has engraved you into the palms of His hands. What a powerful image. At this same time, this mysterious figure called the servant, his kind of character is going to be developed in the book of Isaiah. He's been hinted at all throughout Isaiah, and essentially it's the same hope that we've talked about. God is going to cause a new exodus, a new return from exile, and there's going to be like this new Moses, this new King David to lead the charge back home and to defeat the Babylonians. What's going to take place in the remaining portion of Isaiah is more clues at the character and purpose of this servant. And the character and motif of the servant figure, as it develops, you're going to see that this is one of the greatest plot twists in the entirety of the biblical narrative. Isaiah the prophet will lead you somewhere and then do a turn that no one in their right mind was expecting. So let's read about the servant. Isaiah starts off telling the the people in the future who are still in exile in Babylon words of good news, and he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. This is an image. Isaiah wants you to picture an old city with a giant city wall. And there's a watchman on the city walls. And watchmen had a specific job. They wait at the high point and they look off into the distance and they wait to see if there's any uh, invaders, any foreign armies coming. And their job is the second they see the bad guys coming is to turn around and blow the horns, blow the trumpet, and let the people inside the city walls know the invaders are here, the army is here, prepare for war. But this watchman sees a runner, someone coming off in the distance, And rather than being an invading army, it says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. What is the one running to to the cities doing? He's going to publish peace. He's going to bring good news of happiness. And what in particular is this good news about? It's the last line. Say to Israel, say to Zion, your God still reigns god himself is returning to redeem his people to end the exile and to cause this new this second exodus and what's the outcome of that isaiah the prophet says this well if that's true break forth together into singing you waste places of jerusalem for the lord has comforted his people he has redeemed jerusalem it's this image of celebration our sorrows are over our wars are over This good servant, God has sent him, and he's going to bring good news, and he's going to take out the Babylonians. He's going to free us. He's going to give us um, freedom and and happiness, and we'll be back in the promised land. Isaiah then begins to describe in detail the work of the servant Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. These are, are three quick descriptions that are all royal images. They're enthronement words. The servant is going to be high. He's going to be lifted up. He is going to be exalted. The servant is going to be enthroned. The servant will be a king, a king like David. He's going to be a leader like Moses. He is going to deliver the captives in the exile, new exodus, power, glory might. Israel waits with tiptoe expectation and anticipation for the coming of God again to his people. Now, this is the crazy plot twist. Isaiah continues his description of the servant. As many were astonished, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind." Isaiah says that the servant will be so disfigured that you won't be able to recognize him. And in English, it's, it's kind of clear, but it's really clear in the Hebrew. The, the disfigurement of the servant is not so much like, man, this guy got beat up so badly. Who is he? We don't recognize this guy anymore. The language is saying that the disfigurement is so bad. Your question not, is not, who is he? It's, it's a what is it? Is this thing even human now again if you're reading this for the first time you're like the servants coming the king's coming god's restoring zion the jewish people suffering our woes they're about to end and then all of a sudden it's the servant will be so marred and disfigured you won't be able to recognize him isaiah goes on for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground If you've been here for the previous eight weeks, does this image sound familiar? Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah prophesies that judgment will come upon Israel, and Israel will be like a tree that is chopped down. And then just when you think that's bad enough, the remaining tree stump will then be burned. But then out of a burning tree stump, hope, a branch, a young Shoot comes out of the burned tree stump. It's the image of hope in Isaiah. The servant grew up like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Nothing special about the way he looks. Question uh, Who did Israel pick as their first king? Saul. Now, what was one of the reasons why they picked him? He's tall and like look good. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, this is one of the main reasons. No, this is one of the main reasons why you should just not trust tall, good looking people. You know? You tall, good looking people think you got some kind of. Not according to the Bible. When you want to trust someone, you pick the five foot seven dudes. Like, yeah, you go like this. Yeah. Down with Sam Whitaker. Down with him. (laughs) This king, you won't even be able, you wouldn't even know that he was in the room. He just goes by and you wouldn't notice. This, This servant is different. He continues, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid, men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Whatever your image of the coming servant king is, now it's getting distorted. This guy is rejected, he has sorrows, he's acquainted with grief. If you're reading this text like, no, 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 when the servant comes, when the king comes... We'll rec- we'll know him. We will recognize him. We will exalt him and lift him up. And if you have ears to hear, he will be lifted up and he will be exalted. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There's this weird exchange occurring in the text. Somehow the servant is going to to carry our griefs, our sorrows, and afflictions. Even though humanity deserves the sorrow, the grief, and affliction, a great exchange is about to occur, and all of the woes of humanity are about to be put upon the servant. He will bear them for us. It's interesting there is something that occurred in the world that Isaiah was written in. the 6th, 7th century, we have um, documents. In particular, that there's a document from Assyria that talks about this sort of weird ritualistic exchange, very similar to what's going on in, in, in the text here. What would happen was Let's say you're the king of Assyria and uh, your wise men, your prophets and your priests speak of bad omens or evil spirits or they say danger is coming to the king, the evil spirits are gonna take out the king or death comes to the king. What the king would do is go, okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna remove myself from the throne, remove myself from being king and I'm gonna go off into this sort of virtual exile, a place of hiding for a short period of time And then they took someone else from the general population, usually someone that had some uh, physical weakness, or maybe it was someone who couldn't walk right, but someone who was considered physically weak, and they would take that person and dress him up as king and put him on the throne. And it was a way to say that, okay, there's bad things going to happen to the king. Well, I'm not the king anymore. And then whatever the evil spirits or the, the priests or the prophets would say would happen, it would fall upon this innocent person from the general population. Now, specifically in the Assyrian text, it says that you could only leave that person up there for 100 days because, you know, you've got to get the real king back on the throne. And what they would do, if nothing happened, nothing bad happened to the regular guy pulled off the streets after 100 days, they would kill him just to be sure that the gods aren't still angry or the evil spirits aren't still coming for the king. In other words, the Assyrians would have their king protect himself and take the innocent person from the general population and have him carry the burden of the king. What the servant is doing in the book of Isaiah is the inverse of that great exchange. This servant, this king, takes upon himself the burden and the affliction and the sorrow that is supposed to be coming to Israel. This is, this is crazy. For kings to talk like this in this time period is absurd. This king and this servant is different. He puts the sorrows and the afflictions of his people upon himself. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brings us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, even if you're not a Christian at this point, and you only have like a little bit of knowledge of Christianity, at this point in Isaiah, you're going, I see where this is going. Come on. This is this sure sounds a lot like Jesus, some, some king, some servant guy who steps in place, takes the suffering and sorrow upon himself, and then says to freely forgive the people who actually deserve it. This, this text is so clear, and it sounds so much like Jesus, that for a while, um, scholarship several decades ago thought that this part of the book of Isaiah was written very, very late, Um, not by the original prophet Isaiah, but by someone very, very, very late in the game, so close to the time of Jesus that basically all the historical factors were in place and they invented kind of this job description of the servant knowing that, hey, any second now, one of these would-be Messiah figures is going to get killed and then we could attribute it to this figure. Well, that kind of thinking ended several decades ago, particularly with that line of thought, not with others. Uh, because of a massive discovery that most people are are familiar with, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were a a bunch of uh, scrolls discovered in the Qumran community in Israel, most likely belonging to a group of people called the Essenes who lived out in the desert. Most people are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but most aren't familiar with, like, the greatest discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the Great Scroll of Isaiah, which you see here. The Great Scroll of Isaiah is a completely intact copy of the entire book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 66. This thing is over 24 feet long. Its date, according to modern scholarship, is at the youngest, 150 B.C., at the oldest, 350 B.C., which means no matter how you look at this document, we have a copy of it, that is at least a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus. We're talking about, a, at minimum, a 2,300-year-old text. And this is a copy, so you know that there was versions of this before it. 24 feet long, perfectly intact. And we know when we read this that we are reading the words of a prophet at minimum a couple hundred years before the time of jesus speaking about a coming into exile a coming end to exile and about a servant figure who is going to come and suffer on behalf of his people and in turn deliver and forgive them i mean look at this you could keep zooming in on this you can go online google search this you can zoom in on it all you want it's crazy this, by the way, is uh, Hebrew reads right to left, and so we are looking at the actual portion of the Isaiah scroll that reads, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. When you read the book of Isaiah, no, you are reading something very, very old and very ancient. It's the words of a prophet before the time of Jesus speaking of a coming servant. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. If you've been tracking with us, offspring, Hebrew word, Zerah, we're not talking about mere physical descendants. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall somehow prosper in this suffering servant. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What a paradoxical statement, right? Out of the anguish of his soul, somehow he shall see and be satisfied. Because the servant doesn't suffer without purpose. The servant suffers and experiences anguish and torment for a specific reason. And when he accomplishes his mission, despite the anguish, he will say to his soul, I am satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities, their sin, their suffering." Now, what Isaiah is going to do as we move forward in this series, he's going to continue to give us glimpses of this servant. But one of the strange things that will start to develop is this idea that it's not only Israel that's in need of a new exodus, that's in need of an ending of exile. Israel may be in bondage and slavery to Babylon, but Isaiah says, all of humanity as well, is somehow also in this slavery to this evil empire he'll call Babylon. And he says, this Babylon has a different ruler. He's the serpent of old, the mysterious figure who works behind the scenes, And make no mistake about it, it's not just Israel that needs deliverance from slavery. The whole world is enslaved to this other empire with this other ruler. And the mission of the servant is not just to deliver physical ethnic Israel back into the promised land. Somehow, the servant is going to wage war on Satan's sin and death. It's a video I'm going to show you. It's like five minutes, and then we're going to tie everything together. Um, this is from the Bible Project, uh, the kind of theological mind behind the Bible Project, a guy named Tim Mackey. It's a cartoon. It's a five-minute cartoon that's going to explain what's been going on in Isaiah chapter 40, and it's lead up to the work and ministry of Jesus. And I'm telling you, like, in five minutes, this cartoon will connect more dots and make things make sense than so much. These, these cartoons are so good. If you guys are interested... Um, I'm on the leadership team for something called the Regeneration Project. We started a podcast um, just last week, and Tim Mackey will be on the podcast tomorrow, so you can just search Regeneration Project. It'll come up. We're interviewing him. He's a brilliant mind. I I have an amazing opportunity, basically. It's a podcast where I just get to talk to, like, the most brilliant theological minds in in the country and wrestle with deep issues that young people are wrestling with. So search for it. You can find it. But the guy behind this will be on tomorrow. Isaiah 40 connects to the gospels in a unique and profound way and this cartoon puts the puzzle together so well.
1: There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah.
2: The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remain in the city. And they're left Wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us?
1: Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone.
2: Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple
1: were destroyed. Yeah, Everything seems lost.
2: But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills we see a messenger. and He's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king. And that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne,
1: and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns.
2: Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel.
1: So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news?
2: But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about
1: proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it
2: surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said The greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and
1: seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him.
2: Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing
1: God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins.
2: And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him king. And Jesus let them.
1: Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king.
2: That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews.
1: Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe.
2: He's exalted up, not onto the throne, but onto the cross.
1: How beautiful are the feet that bring good
0: news. God is returning to his people, but the way he did it was completely un- expected see god made a promise to eradicate evil on page three of the bible page three says there is one coming who will defeat the serpent crush his head but here is the thing god could eradicate evil right now no problem End it. no more suffering take out evil the big dilemma with that, and this is so offensive to the modern mind and the modern heart, is if God were to eradicate evil right now at this moment, we all die, every last one of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray the modern person wants to pride themselves on their moral, moral life and virtue. But the Bible says this sin thing, this rebellion against God, was not just in Adam and Eve, but it's in all sons and daughters of Eve. And if you're honest with yourself, you know it's in you too. You know you do the things you do not want to do, and you do not do the things that you want to do. And so somehow, God has made a promise to eradicate evil, to destroy evil. He's going to take it out. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that 2,000 years ago when he showed up to defeat evil, he didn't just wipe it out completely. He put something in motion. And we're going to be looking at this for the next three weeks. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going to wage war on evil. He is going to fight a battle against Satan, sin, and death. And somehow, mysteriously and miraculously, in the midst of eradicating evil, he's going to go on a rescue mission to save humanity, despite the fact that they've rebelled against him. And when you look at the life of Jesus in the words of the prophet Isaiah, the lamb is going to fight differently. He does not fight the way our earthly empires fight. You need different weapons because the battle is not against other human beings. You can't bomb it. You can't kill it with the sword. You wrestle not against flesh and blood. You wrestle against powers and principalities and a spiritual reality that is not acknowledged by the modern world. And so when Jesus comes, he puts something in motion that somehow is going to eradicate evil and rescue humanity at the same time. This is why the remaining of the series is called The War of the Lamb. Now I want to make something very clear um, before we close. It's called The War of the Lamb, but I want to make it absolutely clear and absolutely certain that the war that the lamb fights and the war that we fight in is not against human beings reason why this is so important is I don't know if you're aware of this but we are in a hyper polarized culture right now everything is kind of accusatory and everyone throws stones at everyone else and it's hyper polarization taking place and it's very easy in our culture to begin to think that the enemy is actually other human beings you do not wrestle against flesh and blood Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's plenty of crazy people who I want to call my enemy. But the way of the lamb, the way he fights, is different. And it's the role and responsibility of every Christian to use the weapons that Christ has given us. And they're not the usual weapons. Human beings are not your enemy. And even if they were, the job of a Christian is to turn enemies into friends. Why? because our king turned his enemies into family members. And if you're honest with yourself, you rebelled against this good king. And when he came, he didn't destroy you. He didn't kill you. He went on a rescue mission, saved you and adopted into his family. And he puts you on the same mission to use the same weapons in the war of the lamb. Now, The reason why we can trust this is because we know that one day God will really, truly eradicate evil. We don't have to take that into our own hands because there is coming a day where God says enough is enough, but because our king is gracious and merciful, in the meantime, he's on a rescue mission. The worship team's gonna come. We're gonna close with one song that's gonna tie all of this together. C.S. Lewis... Um was reflecting on this same concept. Why doesn't God take out evil now? Why is there this kind of first coming of Jesus? Why is there this second coming of evil? Why are Christians called now in the present to do these works of grace and compassion? Why does the Bible say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Don't take this into your own hands. How is all of that stuff working? And we're gonna talk a lot about in the coming weeks, how the work of Jesus is the work that we should participate in. But C.S. Lewis, in wrestling with this, um, draws our attention to an image, and this is D-Day, 1944, and uh, C.S. Lewis asks the question to himself in the book, Mere Christianity. He says, why is it that when God chose to invade earth, he didn't come like this? Why did he land in enemy-occupied territory like as a little baby in a manger? Why didn't he come like this? he comes as a little baby, and why does he come disguised as a baby and and teaching people to be loving and compassionate? Why doesn't God just completely show up and eradicate evil, same thing? (laughs) Why doesn't he just do it? What C.S. Lewis said, uh, and I'm going to read you the longer quote, inspired the closing song that we're going to sing, and it's a Christmas song no one's probably ever heard of. No one's probably ever heard of it, but I think it's the greatest Christmas song ever. Um, Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Why is God landing, born in this enemy-occupied world in disguise as a baby and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? Why is he not landing in force, invading it? Is it that he is not strong enough? Well, Christians think he is going to land in force. We just do not know when. But we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. Now, this is where it gets incredible. God is going to invade, all right, but what is the good of saying you are on the side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, This moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us a chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. God has promised to destroy evil, but he was merciful and gracious, and rather than take out all of his enemies, he went on a rescue mission, and he waged a war differently, and we live in that in-between time from his first coming and second coming. Make no mistake about it. Christmas morning is about war. It's a war against Satan, sin, and death, and about a rescue mission to save the captives. This is a Christmas song. Doesn't sound like a Christmas song, but it is my favorite Christmas song that brings all of this together. God has promised to eradicate evil. May you join him in his mission and may you use the weapons that he has given us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we work alongside of a king who has empowered us by his spirit. And so go this Christmas season celebrating what Christmas is all about. The Lord bless you in Jesus' name, amen.